All right, church. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and find your way to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, we're specifically going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 and just the first three verses. That will be on page 1008 if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles around the room. Now, as you are turning there, let me introduce to you some very important ideas uh, that I believe that this text speaks to for us this morning. And it's a topic of uncertainty, but yet hope. Uncertainty from our perspective, but hope that's beyond us. Now, in case you're new, generally we like to just walk through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. Uh, but this has been one of those weeks where, as a church, uh, we've had a lot of um, unsuspecting or unexpected events happen just in the life of, of many in this room. And I know for myself, sometimes when you have those weeks, and those weeks happen, and that's okay. When those weeks happen and you kind of feel the weight of a broken world, right? You feel the weight of things going on in this life that you did not expect to be here. Where do you go? Right? Where do you go sometimes when the world feels, from our perspective, right? It feels like it's just crushing, right? You feel like the, the consequences of sin seem to be all around. And I know for many of us, we go through periods of that. Sometimes for great lengths of time, where you deal with the consequence and the presence of sin, whether it's in your life or those around you. And what I've known to be true just in my time as a person, and certainly my time as a Christian over the last 10 years, is you are either coming out of a period of suffering, you are right in the midst of a period of suffering, or unbeknownst to you, you're about to walk into a period of suffering. So what do you do? Where do you go? That's what I want to talk about today, and I believe that this, the author of Hebrews attempts to answer those questions and those questions that surround this topic. And I believe for every Christian in the room this morning, the author gives a very clear answer of what do you do. Now, for context, before I actually read our text for us, in case you're not familiar, um, we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, but we do know is that it was written, and why it's called the letter to the Hebrews, is the author was read, writing to Christians who had a Jewish background or, or came from a Jewish family, and he was writing to now these Christians who had this long-standing and learning in Judaism and yet these Christians are walking through a very tough season of life. They're walking through persecution. They're walking through hardship. They're walking through great duress. And as a body of believers, the author wants to encourage them. He wants to remind them that Jesus is better. That he is better. That you do not need to turn back to maybe what you grew up with. You don't need to turn back. That the hope in which you have found in Christ will sustain you. 
The hope that you found in Christ is better than anything that this world could possibly offer you. And so it's a letter of Jesus is better. And I believe as the author gets to the end here, right, he gets to chapter 12, which we're going to be looking at, he gives some very specific instructions to these Christians on where do they go in times of turmoil. All right, well, I hope you guys have all found that spot in the Bible, and let me go ahead and just pray for us one more time. Let me pray for you, and I ask that as I'm praying for you, you would pray for me, and then we will jump into text together. Well, Father, we want to come to you once more uh, simply because we are in desperate need of you. God, this is your word. God, this is your, your revealing, your revelation of who you are and what you have done. And God, we ask that you would just illuminate your word for us this morning. God, I pray for every single person in the room. That God, that you would just grant them the ability to see who you are. Maybe for the first time. But be able just to see the, the grandness, the goodness, the sovereignty the wonderful works of you. God, we are in desperate need of you to take the words off of these pages and, and place them deep within our souls. God, we also want to pray for our kiddos next door as they're, they're looking at this same text. God, as those little minds are trying to comprehend what does it mean to look to Jesus God, I pray for those teachers, that they would be able just to, to lead them well. And then, and as a church, every single, every single soul, we'd be able to walk out of here today, Jesus, loving you far more than when we first walked in. And it's to that end we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen. The author says, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks to be to God indeed. Now, as we are looking right at the beginning of this 12th chapter and how it's been organized in our English Bibles, the author clearly intends to build upon what he has been written previously. And how do we know that, church? Well, we know that from the very first word of chapter 12. What is it? Therefore. Right? And I know many of you guys are good biblical scholars, and so you know when you see a therefore, you have to ask what? What is the therefore, therefore? Right? The author is intending to build upon what he has just written. And so as you look back to the immediate previous context in chapter 11, what do we see? Well, we see what is often referred to as the hall of faith. 
where the author is unpacking and describing and recounting all these Old Testament saints, these Old Testament individuals who walked with God. And he's reminding us about their faith. Old Testament individuals like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. I know, Jeff, you heard your name, you're like, what? (laughs) See, all of these saints, they're ones who walked with God. But for those of you who know maybe your Old Testament, spent some time in it, you know that these individuals often walked with God through deep and painful moments of their lives. Moments of great success for many of them, but also moments of great failure. Moments what theologians often refer to as dark nights of the soul, where sometimes maybe depression just doesn't seem to lift. And yet here in verse 1 of chapter 12, they are referred to as a cloud of witnesses. Cloud of witnesses. But witnesses to what? Right? What are they witnesses to? I believe they're witnesses to the faithfulness of God. They're witnesses to the one true God that works in any, any and every situation. Witnesses that could tell you that God is moving in all time, in all places, in all situations for his eternal purposes. See, it's important for us to remember, church, that these are witnesses. They're not what our eyes fixate on, but they are witnesses pointing us to something greater. They have the testimony of the faithfulness of God even when things ended absolutely tragically in earthly terms, the Bible says there are still witnesses to the goodness of God. And so here in verse 1, then the author gives some direction to us, right, as he's writing, even though that we're not the original, right, Hebrew audience, he's writing to Christians. And so there's a timelessness for us to behold this morning. These witnesses are there to remind us To do something. And what does it say? It says, let us also then, right? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, church, the Bible is constantly, it's constantly trying to get us to understand that although we have unique and individual circumstances surrounding our lives, right? You guys live in context with factors that are very unique to you, that many people would never be able to say, I know exactly what you're going through, or I know exactly what your life looks like. The Bible acknowledges that, but yet it's always calling us to say, but yet, even with our individuality, there's a corporateness that we're all made in the image of God, and therefore, no matter what our circumstances are, We are not to abandon the God who has created us. We are not to abandon the God who has a plan in this world. We are still called to worship him and him alone. The only God. But we have to take very careful notice here, and I've already said this previously, but I want to say it again. The author is writing to Christians. 
which is very important for us to understand. Because it would be easy for us to, to misinterpret this and say that if you do this, if you run this race, if you lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, then God will do something. Or then you can become a Christian. Then you can look to Jesus. That's not what it says. He's speaking to Christians. He's not saying that you do this to earn something from God or to earn some kind of special favor from God. But like any of the Christian life, any of the imperatives of what you do always flow out of response to what has God done. What has God done? It's response to the good news of the gospel, church. Because let us not forget, what is that good news? It's the good news that God, who knew that this world was full of sin, right? He was there from the very beginning. He saw the tragedy. He saw the rebellion. He saw individuals walk away, turn their back to him and his goodness. Yet, he did not do the same. In fact, he came as a person. He took on humanity. And what did he do with that humanity? Through the person and work of Jesus, he lived a life that we could not live. Right? He went to a Roman cross to die a sinner's death, to be a substitute, to take on the sin in which we justly deserved so that he could give us what we didn't deserve, and that's the righteousness of God. So when we consider, and we'll, and we'll look at this, before we consider what has been set before us, the text reminds us, of the faithfulness of Jesus doing what was set before him. And that was the cross. Look at verse 2. When it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, church, I find it very radical in, in many ways to see that word joy connected to Jesus enduring the cross. When you think of Jesus' life in some of the agony in which he had, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God the Father, is there any other way? Right, literally sweating drops of blood, the text says. But yet, our text here says, though, but there was a surpassing joy in the heart of Jesus. There was a joy in his mind and in his heart as he went to the cross. Joy, church. Even amidst great pain and anguish. The author says there was joy. And why could that be? How in the world could Jesus have joy when he endured the cross? Well, he had joy because he was accomplishing the very thing in which he actually came to earth to do. In one of the gospel accounts, in a conversation that the disciples were having with Jesus, they're trying to understand all, all the ways that Jesus was talking about his death and, and his salvation. They're trying to piece it all together. And, and they basically said, Jesus, what are you, what is this? What are you about? And this is what he says in Luke 
He says, for the Son of Man, and this is speaking about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And by doing so, he actually despised the shame. And by doing so, he is currently seated at the, the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. So church, remember, the reason why Jesus had joy is because he was accomplishing the very reason why he came. And dear friends, that means if you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure where you're at, I would plead with you this morning to consider why Jesus went to the cross. To try to understand it, not just in a, in a historical sense, but a very personal sense. Because the, the truth of the matter is, if, if you have not trusted in what Jesus came to do, if you have not believed in his person and his work, if you have not believed that Jesus was on the cross in your place, the Bible is very clear in saying that means that you're still in your sins. It means that you will still bear the penalty for those. And so even in a text like this, we are reminded of fresh church, of just the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news for sinners like me, for sinners like you, that God came, he endured, he ran the race that was set before him, and that was the race of the cross. And as we looked a couple weeks ago, the glory of the resurrection. So let us not forget the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. Before we look at what's set before us, let us not forget what was set before him. Because as we look at some of these things that, that God clearly calls all of us to do, we do in response to what he has done. We cannot get the order backwards. And so our text now focuses in on then the very practical ways then we respond to what Jesus has done by looking and beholding Jesus. It says to run the race that is set before us, meaning that God has not just saved you from the penalty of sin, even though that is glorious and true, but he's also saved you to a life. He's also saved you to something. And we get to look at that and behold that, and by his grace, walk down that. Because the life that you live, make no mistake of it, no matter what season or what has happened or what will happen, the text says that it has been set before us. Meaning that he is in complete control. Like Tim mentioned in the, the psalm reading, he's sovereign. Meaning that there is not a go, uh-oh, I didn't see that coming from God. Right? He doesn't say that. We say that. He doesn't. There's no accidents. God knows exactly what your race looks like from the very beginning. And if that's true, that means you can trust it. You can trust that you are intended to be here. That he knows. As one a Puritan used to say on this topic of, of hardship in the life of the Christian, he says, remember it's by God's appointment. Remember it's in his keeping. It's under his training, and it is for his time. 
and all those things don't mean that it mean it's going to be easy, right? And, and I think many of you know that. Walking with Christ, following Christ, is not to, to make heaven here on earth now. It's not it. It's God saying, I know, and one day I will renew this earth to be exactly what I intended it to be. But until then, I will hold you fast. Like the song we sang, he will hold me fast. That's what this is about. So the author here compares the Christian life to one of a race, like a physical race, which doesn't take me long to just go, that doesn't sound very fun at all, right? I'd have never run a race in my life, and I never intend to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I know enough about right, physical exercise that you can expect hardship in it. Even the word race in the Greek, it's the Greek word agon, where we get agony from. Right? It's intended to have hardship. There's, there's an understanding of difficulty. And so this life then is to be understood in the reality in which it is. Like a physical race, the author then says, don't try to run it with weights clinging so closely. We know, in a practical sense, that it'd be incredibly dumb, right, for you to set out on a marathon with ankle weights on. Things that simply do not have to be carried. But yet, how often do we try to run our race like that? We try to bear, we try to sneak in certain weights and go, it's not going to really affect me, right? I can, I can hold on to this. It's not going to be a big deal. It only leads to exhaustion and often disappointment, though. And here is an important factor. The author says, weight and sin, church. Weight and sin. Meaning that they may not be the same thing. That there could be actually very good things in your life. But good things can become weights or obstacles. Now, we wouldn't say that they are sinful, but in all reality, they often take your eyes off of the ultimate goal. They end up becoming more important. They end up coming, becoming, having more need of attention, right? More of a priority in your life than actually growing in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Those are weights, they're obstacles. Not necessarily sinful things, but obstacles, unnecessary baggage. Then what you're trying to sneak on and saying, this, this doesn't affect me, when it does. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, right, what are those weights or obstacles that often do not propel our hearts to worship? That do not stir, stir our souls to, to contemplate and think, and remember Jesus Christ in all things. What are those things that stifle our affections for Christ? What are those things that may need to be cast off? Now, maybe that's a hobby, right? Maybe that's some form of the American dream. Maybe that's certain spending habits. That could be time in front of the TV. It could be time with your phone. 
I trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to each and every one of us. But then there's also sin. And the Bible speaks very clearly about sin. Now, sin, what is sin? Sin is a direct rebellion against God and his goodness. There are sins of what are known as sins of commission. Those are doing things in which God has clearly prohibited and saying, this is a rebellion against me. This is a rebellion in how I've created you. This is a rebellion of what I want for you. There's also sins of omission, where you refuse to do the very things which God has said, do this. Do this in response to me. Do this because this is good for you. This is how I've designed you. So sins of omission is taking the things that we are called to do and saying, I'm not doing that. What this scripture is saying is that sin needs to be dealt with. Sin does not need to be tamed. Sin does not need to be excused. Sin does not need to be justified. It says it needs to be lay aside. This is, the Bible calls this repentance, church repentance, where you're no longer at peace with that sin. You're no longer trying to sneak that sin in. You're no longer at peace going, this won't really affect me or the walk in which I've been called to walk. But rather, repentance is laying that aside, turning from that, that sin. But the Bible doesn't just say turn from sin. It says turn from sin and turn to Someone. And who is that someone, church? It's Jesus. Right? It's Jesus. Because the only way, and and hear me on this, the only way that any of us could possibly lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us if our eyes are fixated on Christ. Uh, A Puritan named Thomas Chalmers, he he would coin this phrase, but it's been used... Um, for a long time, he would call this the expulsive power of a new affection. It's when that you're taking your sin and you're replacing it with something better. With a new affection. Something that's more valuable. That instead of looking one way, you're looking at something better. And that you're looking to him. That you're beholding him, right? That you're desiring to follow Christ more than you're desiring to cling so closely to the sin. That's what repentance is. And it's only through his grace, right? It's only through his mercy, church. And so I would plead with you, if you're, if you're you know, feeling maybe even a sense of conviction this morning going, I think that there's areas of my life that are clinging on to me. There's weights, these, these obstacles in my pursuit, in my walk with Christ. You can tell him that. I don't want to desire that anymore. I want to desire you more than that. And we can come to him with those requests. We can come with him and saying, change my heart, Lord. You're in charge of it. Change it. And as verse 2 mentions, and as we look to Jesus, you need to remember something, that he is the founder of, and the perfecter of our faith. Or another way to say it is he's the source 
and the completer of our faith. Meaning that Jesus is more than just a model. He is so much more than that. He is God. And he's one that has walked perfectly ahead of us. Because here's what I know, and, and I know this in, in many different ways, from my own life and from conversations with you, and also through the testimony of the scriptures, is when you find yourself walking down a road that you never thought you would walk down, what's something that you desire in that? It's a desire to talk to someone who might be able to relate to you, right? It's a desire to know somebody, to talk to someone who has gone through the road before. Maybe through chemo, maybe through family strife, maybe through just those unforeseen circumstances like the death of a spouse, a child, a loved one, divorce, or even war. Right? There's part of us that desires to, to be a part of a community that we can say, do you know what I'm talking about? And they go, yeah. Maybe not in every particularity, but in some ways, yeah. And that's actually a very good thing. I think God has actually wired us for community in that way. And I absolutely encourage it. But here's what I want to do this morning, though. That even before that, because that community is supplement to something else. And it's supplement to the person and work of Christ. Because we all have the same someone who is the source and perfecter of our faith. We have him. We have, Hebrews says earlier on, that we actually have the one who's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. The one who has been tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. Right? That's why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Because he knows He's lived on earth. He's experienced hardship. He's experienced betrayal. He's seen the consequences of sin. He's gone through it all. And what we can go to church and say, Jesus, you have walked this road. And you have done so perfectly. And so we can come to him. We can look to him. And the scripture says we confidently then draw near to him. Because he's on a throne, a throne of grace now. So we can come to him and say, Jesus, you know. You know everything about my life. You know everything about everybody's life. You know everything that has happened. You know all the details of my past. You know all the details about my future. You know all of it. And I can trust you. Because you have set before me the road I'm walking now. So church, let's keep our eyes fixated on him. Knowing that we can trust him. Knowing that he has demonstrated right, that love and that commitment to us by enduring the cross. Like the theme of the entire letter, as I mentioned before, Jesus is better. We don't have to look elsewhere. He is better. He's better than the angels, it says. It says he's better than the prophets. He's better than any sense of security or identity that this world will try to offer you. He is better. We're a world in which we live that says, look within. Look within to find something. Jesus is saying, no, look to me. I'm the author. 
I'm the perfecter. I'm the source. Don't leave me. And then lastly, if you look at verse 3 of our text. We're almost done. It says, consider him who endured from such sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the text says, not only are we looking to Jesus, not only are we remembering that he endured the cross, but we're actually called specifically to consider the hostility that was against him. The hostility that was against Jesus as he went to atone for our sins on the cross. And why would that be helpful, though? Right? Why would that be needed? Why is it helpful not just to consider that he endured the cross, not that just he paid right, the atonement for our sins, but that we would actually remember the agony in which accompanied it? Why would that be important? I think there's two reasons. There's two reasons. One is that every single one of us needs to constantly be reminded of the agony of the cross. The agony of the cross. They should always be fresh on our mind. That we were undoubtedly saved by works. They just weren't our own, church. It was the work of Christ. And so we believe in grace, right? We have received that work by no merit of ourselves. It was absolutely free. It was absolutely freely given to us. But it was not cheap, meaning it cost Jesus everything. And the author says, consider that. Consider that. But I think there's also something else. I think there's also something else as we consider the agony that he endured and the hostility that he endured is that in that moment of that hostility, in that moment of agony, in that moment when sin in the presence and the consequences of sin seem to be ruling and reigning in the world, what do we also know? That God was good. That God had a plan. That God was moving everything in accordance with his perfect will. So the reason why that we remember dark moments in the life of Christ, as if God was at work then, in the most horrendous time in all of human history, when the hands of men were killing God. If God was still good then, he is still good now. He's still good now. And I've, t- I've told some of you this week, this reminds me of a children's book. It reminds me of a children's book that is entitled, The Moon is Always Round. And it was written by a Presbyterian pastor named Jonathan Gibson. And he wrote this book out of uh, basically a reflection of the conversations that he had with his three-year-old son. When they would go out into their backyard at night and they would look up at the moon. And he would ask his son, son, what is the shape of the moon? And, he would, and they've been having these conversations, and so he would respond to his dad, Dad, the moon is always round. And then his dad would ask him, and what does that mean, son? And he would say, it means that God is always good. And those conversations that they would have, even as they went out night after night, and sometimes they would look up at the moon, and they would not see 
a fully round moon. They would say maybe a sliver, a crescent, or no moon at all. And he would ask his son, son, what shape is the moon? The moon is still always round, even when I can't see it. He says, and what does that mean about God? Even when I can't see what God is doing, I know he is always good. Always good. You see, Jonathan Gibson, and I think both the writer of Hebrews is doing or saying that exact same thing here. It says that you can fix your eyes upward to the moon. And even though you can't see all its shape, you can see that night has not overcome the truth of the matter. Because just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean that the moon isn't always round. In the same way, it's just because you can't see it, it doesn't mean that God is not always good. And although I encourage us all to look at the moon maybe very differently, starting today, we can fix our eyes on something much better. Because what the moon is pointing to is it's pointing to its creator. And that creator is Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In church, we can walk out of here today knowing that God is good all the time. Let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm, I'm thankful just for a moment that we can just remember who you are. As this wonderful text says, that we can look to you we can look to you as the founder, as the perfecter of our faith. We can look to you and remember the joy that was set before you, the joy of providing for those whom who he loves, the joy of salvation, the joy of providence, the joy of going, I am God, and I work all things according to my perfect will. And so, Lord, help us remember that today. Help us remember who you are and what you do as we step out of here and, and continue on the very race that has been set before us by you. By you, Lord. Help us remember that. Father, it's in your good and it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.